Patient boys get special toys, but pushy boys get nothing. This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Hoagie. And I'm Mike Caputo. Tonight we're talking about episode two of season two of Nosferatu, Good Father. Good Father was written by David Grimm and directed, just like last week's premiere, by John Scheiben. Sorry. <laughs> we're going to get that name. We're going right. to get that name. And Jamie will will be happy with us. And, and, and John Scheiben will be happy with us. I, I think we have given him probably seven different pronunciations in the last two weeks. It, it happens to me with my name, so I totally feel that. After we're done talking, uh, definitely stick around for this episode because Anna and I are going to be bringing you an interview we did with Joe Hill. Just as the season was premiering, we had a chance to sit down with him for about a half hour. It was a really great conversation. Oh, yeah. It was a pleasure talking to him. I'm really, really happy. And his excitement was just coming out of the line. He's jazzed up for the, this season as well. He really does seem pumped, even maybe more so than last year. And, and I think he was genuinely tickled last season when the show was getting adapted. He seems, I think he's very proud of this work and the universe he's helped create here. But he seems to be really, really, really extra pumped about the season. And, and it seems like he is, just even press-wise, seems a lot more invested and like really on the on the marketing trail on the stump you know right if if he was a politician for the show right right exactly so we have joe hill coming up after uh we're done talking Uh, overall what did you think of this one as compared to the season premiere a little bit different thematically honestly this might just be one of my favorite episodes of the whole series so far it blew me away it really got into the backstory in a way that i i didn't expect the whole thing felt like a little movie it did zachary quinto he was doing some like major stage acting some really powerful kind of steinbeckian stage acting you know in the flashback scenes this week so it was really entertaining i agree with you this if not my favorite episode of the series was definitely probably top two or top three because it was the world building. We got to see the birth of so many things that we've lived with and we've experienced since the show began. We got to see where it all started. Yeah, we got a peek inside of the the mind of Charlie Manx in, in a lot of ways. We got to see how he became who he is right now. And I, I know the answer to this without even asking because I know you were a fan of Lost. But are are you drawn to shows that have deep mythology and lore and world building that take the time to tell you about the characters? I love to become really invested in a character or characters and a story. It gets to the point where I start dreaming about the characters <laughs> because, you know, yeah. they, they mm-hmm. almost become they become so much a part of my mind and, and especially like a good binge of a show. The shows that I want, that I seek out, that I hunt, that I crave is a great story with some secrets, some mythology to it and in surprising ways. It's the shows that also reward you for watching. If you watched the Jolene July episode last year where we got the flashbacks this episode really helps even fill in and give context to Charlie Manx in the past in that episode. There are callbacks here subtly done in every episode of Nosferatu. This show rewards the viewer, one, for watching week after week, but two, for paying attention, for not being on your phone and kind of half in and half out. Those are the shows, for me, that I want to spend all of my time with. Serialized shows that, that demand you pay attention that's that's what peak television is about. When people talk about the golden age of television or peak television that we're living through, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, 100%. I want a show that makes me think. I want a show that isn't predictable, that plays with expectations and genre, takes you in unexpected ways uh, to unexpected places. These ongoing stories, these serialized dramas that have a little bit of a, a supernatural aspect or a horror aspect to them that sort of brings the stakes to a different level when you're watching a story or a family drama. Um, and, and these type of stories just draw me in completely. And especially like you mentioned, Zachary Quinto's 
acting in this episode. It's really hard to sometimes forget that you're watching him. You know, he's, he's, he's a striking presence and we've seen him in so many big things, you know. He actually disappeared into the role. I think he's bitten into Manx in a way, no pun intended, that really shows a, a deeper understanding of the character now. He is Trovi Manx. It's pretty astounding to, to watch him in this episode. It's a rare thing that you get such perfect casting. A lot of times, an actor who does a job well will grow into the role, and maybe to the point where you can only see that character being played by that actor. But I think that's actually a pretty rare thing, especially when you compare it to the amount of television that is available to consume. Zachary Quinto is really the most perfect actor for this role. He is one of the most intense people I've ever seen. And, and not just in this show. He's just an intense guy across the board. His eyes bore into you with, like, the heat of a thousand suns. And I mean that in the best, most mesmerizing way uh, possible. Plus, he's a total snack. I mean, I'm secure enough to say, even at his most Manxy, tantrum-throwing, Depression-era Charlie Manx, the guy is handsome as fuck, right? Am I alone in this? Oh, no, of course, of course. You know, that's sort of the fun, with, especially with him playing villains, because, you know, he sort of has this face that you're attracted to that draws you in, and he's so good at playing just the worst people. It's a great contrast. You know, especially in this episode, you really do get to see this other side of Charlie Manx and, and more range from Zachary. There's a lot of unpacking that happens in this episode. We spend a lot of time in the past. We, we meet Cassie, the bitch of an ex-wife. Uh, oh we meet, we literally experience the birth of Millie, and we get to see her as a child, a not-ghoul child. It was so nice to see her with, like, normal teeth. But more importantly, the show shows us how Charlie Manx came to be. I think you said it perfectly. We got to watch the birth of a supervillain tonight. I think that's perfect phrasing. As a moderator in the uh, Nosferatu fans group on Facebook, the, the powerhouse Nosferatu community, I feel like I see this question in the group all the time, and I, I saw it just this week. Why did this show call itself NOS482? What is this Nosferatu thing? Ah, uh, yes, how to pronounce it or how to say it or what does it mean? Nose for a two? No. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we get to the actual origin of the name of the show in this backstory, referencing the original movie, the original vampire movie, Nosferatu, the 1922 film. We know that that's brought up in the, we, we play, we play vampire you know, Charlie puts some toothpicks or little sticks in his mouth and even even does like the fang thing for a second. So it's a joke. It really is a joke. I mean, people who have read the Wraith uh, graphic comic know that. And, and actually, it's covered in the book, too. I think he says it towards in like the back half of the book. He gives a he gives a little bit. There's a little bit of information about Cassie in the book, but it definitely goes into it more in the Wraith comic. This was this started as kind of like an in-joke, the Nosferatu thing between him and Cassie. I just thought it was a funny little nod to the show, a little meta moment to the show, where she's complimenting it. She's calling him Nosferatu because of the soulful, wounded eyes, which, holy shit, does Zachary Quinto have wounded, soulful eyes. But he retorts that he sees just an old, ugly man with bad posture, which is exactly what Charlie Banks is when he's not feasting on blood. And then Father Haber makes that great comment too, you know, when he's sort of walking away after Manx tries to proposition him and, and get an investment for his fleet that he wants to have a chauffeur business. He says, man thinks he can live off me like a vampire. You know, again, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what he becomes later. For sure. And, and I mean, there were some great lines there. I mean, Father Haber, uh, or uh, his actual credit name was Horace Haber, uh, played by Victor Slezak. He's got Charlie's number here really from the get-go that he, he just sees, he sees Haber as like a meal ticket, you know, as, a, as an open checkbook. And he is going to get his uh, fleet of cars. You know, I did laugh to myself because there are a lot of people in this day and age that make quite a good living off of owning fleets of cars and having the exact kind of business that Charlie is proposing here. So is he just this kid who who's obsessed with a dream or is he just way ahead of his time? You know, it was uh, it was kind of like a funny thing to think about. Like a hundred years from now, this is actually a great business model. 
you know, really high-quality Rolls-Royce uh, chauffeured automobiles, man, he'd make a killing today. Maybe he's actually the inventor of the first high-quality Uber. Right? I think I think that's what we're talking about here. If it was L.A. instead of Wyoming, I think he'd right. have a solid business model. But, yeah, Father Haber just, like you said, he has his number. He, he can tell, like he says, there's something off about him. There's something not quite right about Charlie Manks. He slams him for his cloying servility and then says, uh, the same thing that made you such a great driver, it makes you so insufferable as a son-in-law. And he mentions cloying yes. servility. And then he, says, then he says, there's just something off about you. Holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, I, I have had a father-in-law in my time. And thank God I've never had this kind of experience. But that's the kind of thing only a father-in-law can say to a man. You know, and, <laughs> you not, get, and not get punched just, in the mouth. You can see Charlie just kind of becoming transparent as he said that. I mean, yeah. he just looked right on through. Right on well, through. I, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting because, I mean, you, you mentioned at the top of this episode that there's a lot of Charlie's psyche wrapped up in the beginning of this episode or these flashbacks of part of this episode. And I think right from the get-go, there is a whole vibe. There is a chill in this room with uh, Charters, the manservants, and, and Father Haber here. Charlie is just this upstart car driver, right? He drives the old man around, and now he's gone and eloped his daughter and gotten her knocked up. There's a real chip on Charlie's shoulder because he knows they don't want him here. It soaks every line of dialogue he has with everyone in these scenes. You can sense the animosity between him and Charters, too, because Charlie used to be part of the help. And now, what's he doing sort of, you know, giving Charters orders like he's somebody? And you can just kind of feel that you're not in your place. You're not where you should be. (laughs) You shouldn't be giving me orders. Fans of Downton Abbey are going to know that this is like major no-no stuff what we're seeing here. But but I think it really informs Charlie because I don't know if he was always paranoid or fragile or insecure about his position in life and his lack of money, uh, of any kind of money because he dreams instead of actually works, or if it's born of the treatment and what he is taking in as the vibe from people like Charters, that, you know, who who sees him as being kind of this this up jumped driver or horse saber who sees him as just this gold digging cloying servile loser from his point of view charlie is like the worst possible guy he could have thought to marry his daughter and get her pregnant what's your takeaway from here about the the charlie always lashing out because i think we see it here that charlie is always lashing out that it's kind of someone else's fault or you didn't believe in me. He, he lays that out on Cassie a lot in this episode. You have no faith in me. You, you don't believe in me. Is that born in these scenes with the interaction in the men in Cassie's life? Or do you think that was something that was in him that just kind of got brought out? From my own instinct, it just feels like something that's already in him that got brought out. And maybe there's something that's also happened in his past that we don't know yet that informs this sort of lashing out. But I think he's also just been obsessed for so long with his dream. And he's convinced himself that it's not selfish because he's doing it for his family. He has this ambition because he wants to raise his family up technically he wants to raise himself up but you know under the guise of wanting to do it for his wife and daughter and his wife sees right through it that's why she's saying you know you've been selfish this entire time everything you've done it's always been for yourself and so she feels betrayed she just wants a guy to just work for a living and take care of what needs to be taken care of at that instant which is feeding their daughter and he's got this high in the sky idea that he won't let go of and rationalizes it into i'm doing it for my family it's it's tragic in a way because you see manx has love this capacity for compassion he loves millie i mean there's nothing in the world that is more important to him it seems but there is this other side underneath that's bubbling that, you know, Father Haber could see that starts to unravel when Cassie isn't on board with his dream anymore. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because I think this is a cornerstone of Charlie Manx's psyche, of, of who he really is. I agree with you. I think he was sincerely overjoyed at the idea of having a child. When he says, it's the greatest day in the history of the world, when he realizes that Cassie's pregnant, I, I believe he means that with all sincerity. The problem is... 
And Joe Hill talked about this. We'll talk about this. You'll hear in our interview with him. He talks about the idea that you can't just be the fun time parent all the time. Being a parent is not about Christmas every day. It can't be because someone has to be the adult. And I think Charlie never understands that. And it gets so warped in his mind that Cassie really becomes the villain in his story. You know, everyone, everyone is the hero in their own story, right? But Cassie becomes the villain in his story because she's insisting upon things like, hey, Dick, you know, we have to feed our daughter. We have to get her clothes. This is how adults have to live. Someone has to work. I think we're definitely in the Great Depression here where so jobs are probably harder. But no one is looking for a chauffeur driver. Dummy, you're a big, strong man. Go work in a field or something. Don't be driving your 38, you know, Rolls Royce Wraith and stealing my jewelry and selling it to go buy this car. We, we have to feed our kid. What are you doing? Uh, adulthood becomes like a four-letter word to Charlie. And I think we see the birth of that here. Almost definitely, you know, that little line that he says when he's tucking Millie in after they're in the kitchen, you know, Mama's just worried about grown-up things. Just don't worry about silly grown-up things. You know, this isn't, that's not what he even wants to concern himself with. And I think that that's reflected in the whole creation of his escape, which becomes an escape for him to never have to grow up and save these other children. But they'll never have to grow up either. Nobody has to grow up and we can have fun all day. But we see how that corrupts them and turns them into horrible creatures. You know, it's sort of a huge metaphor for spoiling these kids. Basically, they need to have some kind of balance, and, and every day can't be Christmas. You can't have presents all the time. Look what you turn into. You asked Joe Hill about the inspiration for Christmas Land and the character of Charlie Banks, and, and he, he talked about how he was inspired. Again, you're going to hear this in a little while. I'm, I'm giving you a little preview. He, he talked about how it was the, the island of, like, of bad kids in Pinocchio, um, where they all slowly turn into jackasses, uh, was kind of his inspiration. But for me, it's even, it actually almost uh, smacks of like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, where Peter Pan is not just like some kind of impish kid uh, who just refuses to grow up. But if Peter Pan became a psychopathic vampire-like character and refused to grow up, that's kind of who Charlie Minx is. Christmas land is never Neverland, you know, for intensive purposes. Exactly, exactly. So we see Charlie and Cassie's marriage slowly falling apart here, mainly because Charlie refuses to grow up. He refuses to go get a job. He refuses to let his wife go get a job. So on top of his arrested development here, he also has like a nice streak of misogyny in him where women are just whores and not meant to work. Like a woman going out to work is almost equivalent to her fine or going to her sister's is like equivalent to like her like infidelity. I, I feel like that's kind of the lines he draws in the sand here. Have, have you ever known anyone like this where it's all or nothing? Either, you're either with me or against me uh, kind of personality? Um, sure, they're they're around. I curveballed you with that one. Kind of did. That was not that was not in the prep notes. <laughs> I just think I just think it's a, I just think it's an interesting personality complex, it, but I, I think it's actually pretty common, you know. Yeah. Especially with a lot of men. Yeah, I know people who have definitely have strong views on certain things and very extreme views. Where if you don't believe this, you shouldn't exist. And I think that in Charlie's case, he feels betrayed. And, and any time a woman is not completely with him and completely obedient and wants to follow him and desire the same things that he desires, she's immediately a whore. She's immediately evil. She's immediately a bitch. And I think we saw that in the first season as well, you mm -hmm. know, with how he, he talked about Vic and Jolene. So... This is definitely something that's pretty ingrained in him. And I, I know that if, if, if you've read the race graphic novel, there's some ties that has to do with his mother. But the, the Charlie Manx in this episode, in this story, at least he starts off a lot softer than he's portrayed in the race. You know, he's sort of not immediately sort of this horrible, evil, depraved soul. We, we still sort of see him progress to that in this episode. So I really sort of like that, 
because it sets up a, a nice contrast with his character and it adds a complexity that I wasn't expecting in sort of how they were going to show his origin story. There is an alternate universe where Charters embraces the idea of a driver picking himself up and is supportive of this marriage. There's an alternate universe where Haber is tickled by the idea of a line of chauffeured cars and stakes his capital and Charlie gets to have his dream fleet. But here's the issue with that, though. That's the kind of indulgence that people give to children, right? That's the idea of what makes Veruca Salt in Willy Wonka. The idea that she always gets what she wants uh, and never has to hear the word no creates bad kids. And Charlie... I feel like you get there either way with him in that alternate universe where Charters doesn't throw shade at him and which causes him to bristle where Haber stakes him and the money doesn't never runs out. And by the way, is Millie rich? Is that what the takeaway was? I mean, there was a sizable fortune left to her in a trust, but, but I guess that's a side story. But the idea here is that if they had indulged Charlie, I think he still winds up in the same place. He just becomes even worse of a person because like a, like an indulged child, he just never would have learned the word no. And that's what I was going to say. He's a spoiled child. He's a, he's like a little brat who throws a hissy fit when things don't go his way. A um, brat, huh? A brat, yeah. you say? Yeah, I did, mm. didn't I? <laughs> but, I mean, just in the way he responded with, you know, his wife's very simple request to be able to feed and clothe their child. <laughs> I mean, how dare she, fit. that bitch? That bitch. Exactly. Our, our child needs food. You lazy motherfucker. You know, we, we talked we talked at the beginning here that this was an episode of first, right? Getting to see the birth of things. We see the birth of Christmas Land here at the end of the flashback. As a fan of this show, as a uber fan of this show, what did it mean to you? And what were your thoughts on what was happening in the car? We have Millie's first meal. We have Millie the first child. We have the Wraith. We have the wraith, the magical wraith. Take us through what you thought about that whole scene there. I've got tears. Um, yeah, actually, it was a blast. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I, I knew from the story of the wraith what happens as in the race graphic novel. I, I wasn't really expecting it in this episode necessarily until he offered to drive them. And I was like, oh, I think I knew where this is going. You could see the calculation in his eyes. Yeah, it's he knew Zachary right Quinto. then. Yeah. Oh, such great eyebrow acting he's doing in this scene, in this episode. But there, you see the calculation of, well, let me drive you. It's the least I can do. Let me drive you to your sister's. Oh, shit, girl. Don't get in that car. If I was in the mood there, I'd been yelling at the screen, throwing popcorn. Don't get in that car, girl. Don't do it. The bad shit's going to happen. Yeah, there's no ulterior motives at all here. No, no, no. Just want to drive you. There's a, a line, though, real quick that I wanted to mention because we sort of have been given the idea that the wraith itself has some sort of power to it, that it's not a normal knife. It's not just your everyday object that a, a strong creative uses to get to their endscape. The wraith seems to have a mind of its own. We know that it can drive itself. We know that it can produce toys for kids on its own. And in this episode, we find out that somebody died in the race. What do you think about that? <laughs> there was a show a couple years ago called Blood Drive, which I, I didn't watch, but I, I know about a little bit because I know some people who have been fans of it. And it basically it was about bloodlust-filled cars that fed on blood versus, like, fuel. Like, that's what made them go. Yes, I did see that. When I heard that line, my I had, like, little goose flesh on my skin. I was like, the Wraith has been killing motherfuckers well before Charlie yeah. Binks came along. <laughs> you know? Like, yes. wow, what, what a parent. Like, they were meant to be. You're right. It is not just a triumph. It is not just a knife. It is it is something more. It's got a little bit of a Christine thing going on, which I basically, I ship those two cars, by the way. The Wraith and Christine, I, I ship them. Wraith-Steen. <laughs> Forever. It's kind of like the idea of Voldemort getting, like, the Elder Wand in Harry Potter. Any wand in Voldemort's hand is going to be a powerful instrument. But this particularly imbued wand... Uh, this particularly imbued knife in Charlie's hand makes him a really formidable foe. The guy was dead, scalpel sticking out of his chest. He stapled himself back together, all because the Wraith engine got put back in it. All because a child got put in the back seat. That is a powerful, powerful, cannot underscore, highlight, bold, italicize that enough. That is a powerful connection, and that is a powerful weapon that he wields with the Wraith. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know what other strong creatives are out there that have that kind of ability, that have that kind of relationship with their knife where it has its own strengths and its own abilities that feeds him. It's pretty interesting. You know, one day I, I wanna I wanna dive more into the race backstory. It seems to need its own. I think it needs its own backstory. I make you a bet on the assembly line. When they were making, when whoever made, actually put together that wraith, I make you a bet there is some kind of horrific death or mangling or, you, you know, some kind, some kind of horrible event accompanied the birth of the wraith when it was Someone's made. blood is mixed with the paint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hundred mm-hmm, percent. Something, yeah. I think one of the things that most surprised me in this episode came at the end of this flashback series. When they arrive at Christmasland, Charlie is in the front seat having gone through this transformation for the first time where his eyes get all white noise, right? And then he comes through and he's got like the smooth Charlie Binks skin that we know. He's been transformed by the Wraith in this experience. But it's Millie that points out to him that Christmasland is actually real. Did you, did you note the shock on Charlie's face when he saw it? Yeah, he didn't expect it either. It was a surprise to him as well that this place that they had been imagining, dreaming of, was real after all. He made it happen. He made it become real. He brought the world of thought out and made it into a place that they could actually inhabit. Not unlike the first time Vic conjures the shorter way and where she doesn't understand quite what she's done. And and for her, it was almost kind of confusion and fear. I think for Charlie, it was almost just pure shock. And I can't believe one of my ideas actually worked. Like, I, I did this. But it does make the question, and I'm curious what your thought about it is, if he doesn't have Millie, if if they don't have her, if he doesn't have a child, does Christmas Land ever come to be? That's an interesting thought. I don't really know how to answer that because I think that, I mean, he's been dreaming of this place with his daughter because she was born on Christmas and it sort of became, you know, a huge part of her as well, at least in in this version of the story. Maybe without Millie, there wouldn't have been a Christmas land. I think maybe she was the inspiration, at least in in the story that we know here. Something tells me Millie, had she been a left to live, and by the way, she has to, I, I never realized Millie, did we talk about, I feel like maybe, did we talk about this? Millie has to be like 16, 17 years old. She doesn't look that old, but she has to be timeline wise. She's born in 1922-ish. He owns a 38 Wraith. So assuming it's 1938 when he gets it, and I get the impression how he talks about it, it's actually a little past 1938 when he gets the Wraith. Uh, she has to be at least 16 years old, maybe somewhere 16, 17, 18 years old. She doesn't seem that old to me in the flashback, does she? No, she definitely seems a little younger. And to me, that just feels like he's trying to keep her young also. Yeah, like she was preternaturally young. The same way, a a couple of times this episode, I I thought back to the premiere where Vic says to Lou, I think I conjured this, talking about the Triumph bike and, and the expansion of her powers. We don't know for sure that she didn't conjure that out of air. I feel like we had a little bit of that tonight that Charlie manifested Millie on Christmas Day and the two of them together manifested Christmas Land, that she was being pre preternaturally young. She did not age the way other children age, even when she was alive. Exactly, exactly. Something with his ability, perhaps, you know, sort of mingled in to the situation and, and helped slowed her, you know, at least aging appearance. Just the way that he treats her isn't like, you know, a, a, a young adult. It's definitely like, you know, maybe like a 10-year-old child. Did we mention, by the way, that this child in the backseat ate her mother? Did we mention that? Cassie ends up being the first the first meal in the Wraith, right? Or at least the first, rea- the first meal in the Wraith in the reign of Charlie Manx. Insane. Insane. But you, you, you sense it coming, right? The the way he's looking in the rearview mirror. There's just so much bloodlust on his oh, face. Frenzy. And, oh, frenzy. Yeah. When she smiles and the teeth are gone, you know, she's she has... Uh, they don't quite use the fish fish hook teeth in this show, but they use, like, the, the, the razor claw, like, piranha teeth. 
But when you see that smile break out and Millie's got the piranha teeth, when she loses her teeth and she's giddy the way we've seen the kids in the backseat of the ring exactly. get giddy when they lose their teeth. Oh my God, it was <laughs> it, it was so disturbing, but also made me so happy to see this first. These are all first. I love first. It's all world yeah. building. Mateo was awesome too. She was she was incredible in that scene because she she's so good at playing wicked. You see her in front of your eyes becoming this this horrible little creature and and becoming frenzied with like you said with the bloodlust and the shot of Cassie's face when she pops up for a second. That's more amazing makeup work again by uh, Mr. Joel Harlow. That that was so, so gross and so realistic. I was squealing. <laughs> oh, my God. And and you see it in Cassie's eyes. Again, a strong episode for eye acting in this one, you know, the close-up. But you see it in Cassie's eyes the split second before Millie lunges forward. Cassie knows what's about to happen and can't believe it. But she knows it's beyond all thought. Like, I have a 12-year-old, and never do I think he's going to eat me. You know, I, I think he's going to say nasty things to me sometimes at worst, but I don't think he's ever going to eat me. Cassie sees it, though, and you see in yeah. her eyes she knows. Oh, oh yeah. boy. Let's stick with Millie, though, and let's jump into the present time. Because there's a, there's a scene here in, in the present time where Manx uh, calls Millie and, and tells her that he may not make it home. And upon her pleading, the father in him rallies and he says, that'll never happen. The, the lights will never go off again. I'm on my way. And he hangs up the phone. I have a very specific opinion um, about about their reunion in Christmas Land, but I wanted to see if, if, thematically what you thought about Millie and her standoffishness when she realizes that dad is not sticking around Christmas Land. Uh, let's jump to the end of the episode. What was your take on the reunion of Millie and Charlie Minx? Millie has seen that something that her father told her might not be true, that Christmas land might not be forever and ever and ever. When, when she tells him the lights went out, he doesn't even believe it. He says it's impossible. You know, you, you see that, that there's real fear in Manx all of a sudden, too, when, when he realizes that she, what she's saying is, is true, that, that something did happen to Christmas land. And Millie doesn't seem to buy everything that her dad's saying now. You know, there's, there's broken promises, you know, that uh, there's a feeling that Millie might have to take things into her own hands at some point. I agree wholeheartedly. The idea of the creeping white, and again, fans of the book, they, you know, you know about the, the creeping white as, as parts of Christmas Land get swallowed up, really struck fear into Charlie's face when he heard that. But I agree with you. I think... There was like a little break here. Kids do have faith in their parents almost by design forever and ever and ever and ever, as she says to him uh, in the flashback. But nothing will break that trust more or faster or deeply than broken promises. You break promises to your kids, that's the kind of shit that really cuts like the link and really saws away at it. And even when you're a ghoul child, Breaking promises is going to affect your bond. And I think we saw a little crack in the ice here tonight of Millie and her undivided, unconditional loyalty to her father. But I also had the thought, it's possible Millie is actually more grown up and adult and responsible than Charlie. I think she's having to grow up all of a sudden, you know, in a lot of ways. That, like you said, that devotion that blind devotion is, is sort of being tested, um, not only with the, the broken promises of, of him leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back again, and, and her seeing the possibility of, of Christmas land disappearing, basically, but also the, the sort of the sense of vulnerability. I think she might be seeing that her, her father's vulnerable for the first time and, and that she's vulnerable and sensing her own mortality as you would have, I guess, as a ghoul child, you know, that's, that's going to make her grow up pretty fast too. becoming aware of the danger that they might be in and, and are in. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, I, I, at the end of this episode, Millie doesn't sound that unlike Cassie did in the flashback. Uh, Dad, we've got a fuck ton of children here. We need to feed. We've got no food. We're hungry. The lights are going on and off. You, you know, you're not paying your power bill. The land is being repossessed. Like, she is giving adult concerns to, to Charlie. And he's like, I'm going to go off and, you know, do some revenge seeking with Bruce Wayne. And, you know, and she's like, what? 
in the ever-loving fuck are you talking about? Like, I don't want your little Nathan uh, Demeter snack. Get out of here with that shit. I want you to be here and be a father and take care of your children and keep the lights on. You know, she she's she is telling him the same things Cassie was telling him 80 years ago. That's not going to sit well with Charlie. And that backbone, that spine is starting to really solidify in Millie. Yeah, her growing up, her becoming the adult and thinking about grown-up things. That's not what Manx is going to want either. But real quick, how, how about how he how he tossed that snack to those kids out of the back of the race? That was crazy. I didn't know he had that strength. A homeboy was feeling it. Nothing makes you feel better than a nice close shave and a ride in the wraith. Nothing really rejuvenates you more from a death than a nice Christmas land ride uh, on the on the Christmas land highway in the wraith. And he was feeling his oats, man. He tossed him like a like a like a sack of potatoes. I laughed. And when he said dinner time, but you know what it made, it made me think though, I, I personalize things so much, but being a dad, being a divorced dad, I, I'm sensitive to the idea of fathers that pop in and out of their children's lives. And this whole scene smacked of the dad who doesn't pay child support. It shows up every six months and like throws around like a present, like can't pay child support. So the kid has food or clothes, but will show up with like a video game system and throws it at the kid. And, and because kids are kids, they're, they're gratified in the instant. And so everyone thinks dad is great, but then dad goes off again. That's what this whole scene was to me, man. It's visceral, really visceral. Uh, and Millie, I'm so happy for her, really had the right take, I think, in this scene. Oh, yeah. she's She sees right through it now. She's not going to be placated with gifts. Like you said, you know, she's trying to get him to realize that there's some real important shit going on here. But he's still obsessed with saving all these kids. And is it really about the kids or is it more about Manx and his obsession with keeping useful? That's really what it's about. It's about him. He's the one that's sucking the life out of these kids. Cassie has his number a hundred percent when she tells him and you, and you repeated the line earlier. She says, this is not about Millie. This is not about anything. It's always been about you, about you, you, you. And Charlie has not changed. He says this is about the kids and this is about no child should suffer and Christmas land is a wonderful place. No, Charlie, it's about you. It's about slaking your thirst so that you can continue doing what you want to do because you need these children for Christmas land to continue. You need Bing Partridge to, to go kidnap kids so that you can continue to live your fantasy. It has nothing to do with the children. It has nothing to do with Millie at the end of the day. And that's only starting to set in for Millie, but that's going to be a big fucking problem for Charlie when Millie gets full in her feelings and realizes that she's only just been a pawn. The oldest pawn, the first pawn, but she's been nothing but uh, a pawn in Charlie's own selfish game. Let, let's uh, let's move off of this because the only other normal character that we saw, the only other cast member we saw this week was Bing. This is where the show is great because it shows Bing in kind of a like likable way, where he uh, he finds Nathan uh, Demeter, the, the the artist from last week. We, we find his son Mike in a dog cage. Were were you happy the the way he made Eric and his buddies watching porn a uh, fear and probably poop themselves? It was actually really sweet, like. Just the way that Bing walked in, immediately sees Mike in his cage. It's like, hey, like, yeah, it was, it, it broke my heart, you know, like, I also really love that kind of insane conversation that they had outside later where Bing just says straight up, do you want me to go in there and kill them? It was this kind of twisted sweet moment between Bing and this kid that he's going to eventually turn into a demon boy later. Yeah, yeah, it's the complexity of Bing. Last week he was full-on terrifying, but this was kind of classic non-rapey, non-kill Bing side of him this week, where he really is a defender of children. There is a part of him that is still a wounded child abused by his father. He will come to the aid of a child, and in a way that is sincere for the child's sake. When he, when he says, you want me to go kill Eric, I'll do it. You know, like, it made me laugh out loud, but also, like, he totally meant it. And I like that about Bing, you know? Like, I don't like consider abused. Like, I, I, I totally, I totally empathize with, 
I'll go kill him for you. That's gross. You know, you should not make someone drink your urine. But I don't know if that outweighs all of the horrible, horrible bad things that Bing does in the name of Charlie Manx either. Oh, 100%. Not not at all. The whole reason for him meeting Mike was to basically kill him by putting him in the race and letting Manx have his soul and, and, and become useful and heal Manx again. So it's all an illusion. It's, it's not real. So it, it harkens back to the beginning of the series where Bing is friends with Vic and they share comic books and he's not like being weird with her. He's not like trying to lure her or like, you know, get her in a van with candy. He's like genuine comic book friends with her. Like, like the childlike nature of Bing exists. He is, he has such a trigger for violence and for deviance that Charlie indulges and feeds that fire but every now and then you do get you do get this this flash of him being a defender of children being a person who can be a friend to a child and come to their aid but then it clouds back over again and like you said still loads him in the wraith still takes him to christmas land did you see any crack in the loyalty to, to charlie when he throws bing out of the car at the end of the episode there i feel like i saw maybe a flicker in his eyes of i can't believe this fucker is doing this to me after i saved his life or did i just imagine of that? course yeah, no, I I, I sensed it too, you know, and, and, and I think so did Charlie, and that's why he kind of kept repeating, you know, think about your doubts, think about doubting me, you know, have have go on this walk and think about your actions, <laughs> basically. I think Bing feels like he really did hold the face for a long time. I mean, eight years, he kept trying to do what he could to bring Manx back, and I feel like maybe charlie was a little bit unappreciative just a tiny bit maybe you could have given <laughs> a him a candy bit. cane could have given him a candy cane at least maybe i'm sure know, he has a gumdrop button i'm sure there's a gumdrop somewhere in the wraith that can be like conjured you think he would <laughs> a at least sticky give him one that. from the bottom of the floor somewhere yeah you can have that one i mean it can snow in the wraith i'm sure they can make gumballs Char but Charlie is back now, baby, and he's got, you know, he needs to get back on the kid kidnapping mission. And so uh, no no Christmas land yet for you, Bing Partridge. And yet he sends him to the graveyard of what m might be. What a, what a fun place to return to that I've missed. And what an interesting twist to set up what probably will be a driving force of the season that Bruce Wayne McQueen is in trouble. Did you see this coming? And, and what do you think this spells for Bruce and or for Wayne and for Vic and maybe Lou? I think I definitely saw it coming because he's at that age where Charlie wants to help them, rescue them, you know, air quotes. And obviously Vic hasn't been the best mother, got exactly the scenario that Charlie likes to swoop in and grab these kids. It's 100% set up for, you know, I have a feeling basically we're going to be trying to save Wayne for the rest of the season. It's destiny. It's bound to happen. It has to be, right? I mean, this is how, uh, you know, forces of good and evil always have to, always have to meet. And the fact that we had the first interaction of Bruce Wayne and, uh, and Charlie uh, today. And by the way, Wayne, what the hell are you doing going to the sleigh house? Didn't your mother teach you better? Yeah, so I think it's going to be really interesting. I think that scene in the graveyard, it, it sets up really what the rest of the season is going to be about and brings us to a close in talking about episode two of uh, season two, Good Father. Stick around now because we have a fantastic interview with Nosferatu's author, Joe Hill. It's a far-ranging interview. It's about 30 minutes and uh, it's really, really super interesting. So I hope you guys stick around to listen to that and then we'll be back to uh, wrap it up and say goodbye. Thank you, Joe, for making time out. I mean, I'm sure you guys are yeah. crazy with uh, press, uh, you know, coming up to the season, coming uh, coming this Sunday. So thanks so yes. much for taking the time out. Uh, no problem. Before we even get started about the new season, I just want to kind of talk to you about, you know, these are some strange times. The last time I spoke to you was during the roundtable at South By before season one yeah. even premiered. And uh, I feel like the world has literally just completely changed since then. Uh, how how are you uh, surviving with like the Rona times and, and everything going on right there? It almost seems like it's straight out of a horror novel. Yeah, well, it's not quite as bad as like I wrote about a runaway pathogen in a book called Fireman. 
I wrote about a plague of spontaneous combustion. Of course, my dad wrote the stand about Captain Tripp's super flu that wipes out 99% of Earth's <laughs> population. I think COVID-19 isn't anywhere near as bad as what we've had in fiction. You know, it was also kind of interesting. Fiction deals in worst case scenarios. And so in a lot of plague stories, you'll have that moment when society cracks apart and everyone loots the local grocery store. I went into the grocery store to pick up a couple items just as COVID was sort of breaking big, or maybe that's breaking bad. I'm not sure which, but the, <laughs> uh, you know, just as COVID was becoming the big deal and it was a Saturday afternoon and the place was packed, absolutely packed. But no one was fighting over the last can of beans. There was no hysteria. People were good humored. They practiced social distancing. And there was a kind of uh, camaraderie, a sense of, uh-oh, we're headed for something bad, but we'll get through it because we're all in it together. I think that's sort of a reminder that a lot of horror stories and fantasy and genre fiction, they're interested in worst case scenarios and cautionary tales. But the real world is usually not quite so bad. Not quite so ominous, not quite so panicked. I think you're right. I think people do definitely have a, a tendency to come together in times like this, or at least initially anyway. There, there does always seem to be a, a bit of a camaraderie that comes out of this kind of adversity. I have to say, though, Netflix, I think, definitely was trolling the populace. Uh, they loaded Outbreak into, <laughs> like, their, into their movies literally just as the pandemic was starting. <laughs> Someone, I'm sure, had a very good joke about that, but I thought maybe a little in poor taste. I don't know. I don't know. You know, the other thing about people basically behaving well under pressure instead of panicking and, you know, reverting to some kind of barbarism, there's a book out by a guy named Rutger Bregman, a public intellectual named Rutger Bregman. I've been recommending it at every turn. And it's one of the things he does in the course of his new book, Humankind, is look close at crisis scenarios, at people under pressure. What he reveals time and time again is that pressure tends to bring out the best in people, not the worst. Bregman went viral when he wrote a piece about the real-life Lord of the Flies. Everyone knows the novel. The kids get stranded on the island altogether, and after a few months, they've reverted to a kind of primal savagery, dancing around naked and chasing each other with spears. There was a real-life Lord of the Flies where a gang of 12-year-olds wound up stranded on an island in the South Pacific for a year. And it was nothing like the fictional version. They all cooperated. They banded close together. When one of them broke his leg, the others very calmly and professionally splinted it, you know, put it in a splint and bandaged it up. They kept their fire going for 12 months. They developed skills for dealing with conflict. A completely inspiring story and nothing like the novel everyone knows. It doesn't sell as well, though, right? And isn't that what the publisher cares about at the end of the day? It, you know, the, and they all got along really well. You yeah, know? <laughs> I mean, one of, my, one of my jokes about Nosferatu is that the second season, of course, ends, you know, we, we hit upon a really unexpected ending. It ends with Vic and Charlie Manx hugging it out. They realize actually they have more in common than they have different, and they decide they were always destined to be friends, and they make up over a cup of co cocoa and uh, uh, candy canes, <laughs> yeah. and in season three, they convert the Rolls Royce to a badass van and turn into soldiers of fortune, kind of like the A-Team. Nice. Cruising around, solving people's problems. And, I knew and it. alone episodes. They, I mean, I right? It. Like, it's, it's obviously where the show was going. I saw it the whole time. I thought it, I thought you were setting us up for a, a pre-pre-prequel to, like, Fury Road. That we were going to get, like, a like a Mad Max tie-in. You know, Vic does have a little bit of that Furiosa energy about her, doesn't she? Hell yeah, she does. So does Millie. I'd see her right on the back of that truck, too. Millie does. I'll tell you what, it's not hard to imagine one of the Christmas Land kids strapped to the hood of the Rolls Royce Wraith playing a flaming electric guitar. Yeah, and enjoying every minute of it, for sure. Absolutely. For Absolutely. Sure. Uh, tell us about it, because you've had kind of a bang-up year. I mean, you came off of the success of the Nosferatu adaptation into the Lock and Key premiere on Netflix, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, you have Dying is Easy is coming out. I, I know Dying is Easy number five was supposed to come out in June. Is that still on track? Did that get pushed? It's out. It, it's out. It actually, oh, it, it, actually, it actually landed this week, Wednesday the 17th. 
awesome. um, was the final issue. Yeah, I've had a few things going on. In fact, I, I had so much going on that this year I decided to scale way back before I had a nervous breakdown or something. I've had a bunch of comic books in the pipeline. One is Dying is Easy, which is this fair play mystery. For anyone who's not big into the crime genre, a fair play mystery is a mystery where you get all the same clues the detective gets and could theoretically solve it before the detective does. And I love that kind of thing. I binge watched a series called Foil's War that was written by Anthony Horowitz. You know, it's all these kind of fair play mysteries where the clues are right there if you're paying attention. I had never written that kind of thing before, so I did that as a comic book and, and gave that a shot. And then I've been doing a bunch of horror comic books through DC Hill House. I did a comic book called Basketful of Heads and mm -hmm. another called Plunge. And then we've been, I've been publishing some other writers who had horror stories of their own to tell. And the whole idea was kind of like, what if we did Blumhouse Studios, but for comics? I love that. Love I it. Love, I, love, I love everything about that sentence. That's the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were, you, were you surprised at how at seeing your work translated into TV for, you know, Lock and Key for Netflix and obviously Nosferatu for AMC? Were you surprised at how well, one, that they translate into how well they were received from a wider genre? It wasn't just a horror. Yeah. It wasn't just yeah. a horror or a comic book fandom that, that adopted the show. I mean, you know, Anna's Facebook group is a great testament to that. It, you know, it's a great story that's just been embraced. But what, yeah. what, do you, what do you think about that? First of all, I, I was lucky in my collaborators. You know, I wound up working with some really great, honest-to-God writers. With Nosferatu, I was in league with Jamie O'Brien and Tom Brady and the rest of the really gifted writers in the Nosferatu writers' room. I knew when I read the first script for the first season of Nosferatu, I felt this kind of jolt of excitement go through me. It was one of the best standalone TV scripts I'd ever read in my life. And that quality of writing has persisted throughout the show. And there are some real, I mean, there's some real almost like stunt writing moments, you know, uh, real high wire acts, especially in season two. I think about episode five, you know, without giving anything away. Episode five is almost like what if someone filmed Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon as a horror film? It's a beautifully engineered piece of storytelling. Wow. Um, in, in the case of Lock and Key, I was working with Carlton Cuse from the start. Carlton's body of work speaks for itself. You know, he was one of the co-creators of Lost. Sure. He did Bates Motel, The Strain, gave Amazon their biggest hit with Jack Ryan. He knows his way around genre storytelling. He loves genre storytelling. He's a fine writer in his own right. But I also think that Carlton's particular talent is about creating the right team. So he brought in, you know, uh, Meredith Avril to be co-showrunner with him. Meredith wrote one of the very best episodes of The Haunting of Hill House. They brought in Michael Fuller. They brought in a whole, you know, Liz Fang, a whole bunch of great writers and then he built out the show with a terrific cast, and people seemed to embrace it. I think the most interesting choice that Carlton made about Lock and Key was Lock and Key has strong elements of horror, but it also has strong elements of YA fantasy. And I think the way he cracked it was he figured out that the YA fantasy element was more broadly appealing for a TV audience. And so that's kind of what they leaned into without completely abandoning the darkness and the scares of the comic, but definitely going more for a Harry Potter type experience, you know, than an exorcist type experience. As a dad of a 12 year old who I'm always a little wary to let read like the graphic novels. I appreciated it though, because I was able to watch the show with him and, and it wasn't too, too much. I was going to say that Lock and Key, its chemistry is sort of like 50% Harry Potter, 50% it. And in the TV show, the chemistry is like about 65% Harry Potter, about 35% it, which seems to be the right chemical breakdown for that show. Let's fast forward now to season two of Nosferatu. How was it coming back to the show and being involved with it now? entering season two versus coming into season one and, and watching the thing be birthed. Was it a different experience for you as one of the executive producers? Season one is something of an origin story. We meet Vic McQueen as a young woman just at the end of her teenage years who is beginning to discover her own reality bending powers and this whole world of strong creatives who can use their occult gifts to change the very nature of reality itself. 
you know, she meets Maggie. She has an introduction to this world. She realizes some people in this world are very bad and that the nature of her own gift makes her uniquely qualified to oppose the worst strong creatives. So that's on one hand. And on the other hand, Vic is bearing witness to the end of her parents' marriage. And, you know, she's sort of the last you know, rotten netting of her childhood is tearing apart underneath her. And she's beginning to realize maybe it wasn't actually all that great a childhood and that her parents are very flawed people. (laughs) A little bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. They're very flawed people. That's kind of the feel, the energy of season one. Season two is a little bit of a different creature altogether. I keep saying it's sort of like the difference between the first Terminator film and the second Terminator picture. In season two, we have both these characters, Vic McQueen and Charlie Manx, in the full flourish of their powers. And they're ready to go at each other hammer and tongs. And season two goes hard from wire to wire. It starts at almost 70 miles an hour and speeds up to 120 before you know it. For me, as an audience, I'm all about menace. I love when a character, you know, is is stuck in the bottle, uh, trapped in a corner and trying to find a way to fight their way out. And there's a yeah. lot of that in season two. You know, and I also think I also think the other interesting dimension of season two, Vic McQueen is now a parent herself. And she clearly loves her child. She clearly loves Bruce, her son, and loves her man, Lou. But I don't think she's very comfortable being either either a, a partner or a mother. Those are roles she has that carry a lot of disagreeable associations for her. And she doesn't really know how to play those parts. It's interesting that in some ways it's clear Vic would much rather die tragically fighting a psychic vampire than she would live and struggle along as a mother the tragic heroism has more appeal for her than the sort of exhausting, thankless work of day-to-day parenting and life in the real world. And that's sort of an interesting place to find her. It's a little bit like meeting Buffy the Vampire Slayer years after she graduated from high school and finding out her life sucks. (laughs) Anna has some fan questions. Go for it, Anna. Sure. I have one from from Mike in the Nosferatu fans group. Would you ever consider writing a sequel to Nosferatu, say, where it's Manx versus Wayne as a teen or adult, or a spinoff prequel where we get to maybe explore another one of the strong creatives' backstories like Maggie or July or someone like that? So that's a good question, and there's a couple ways to answer it. One answer to that question gives me a chance to promote a slightly lesser-known work. There is a graphic novel based on the characters from Nosferatu called Wraith. Some of the material in season two, we get a lot of material about Charlie Manx's past and how he discovered his powers. Much of that material is drawn from the graphic novel Wraith, which explores Charlie's backstory. But the other thing about Wraith is that Wraith is sort of like Con Air and Christmas Land. So that's kind of a fun, it's kind of like a fun Nosferatu adjacent story. And it is in comic book form and uh, out from IDW. And if people want to check it out, uh, you know, it's available. Um, I mean, I sort of feel like a lot of my stories take place in the same universe. There is a story called The Crooked Alley, I've imagined writing over the years, which is about another strong creative who encounters Maggie Lee. But I don't know. Who knows if I ever write it? I have a lot more ideas than I have time to write. I'm very, I'm wickedly slow. Um, My last novel was was in 2016. And at the rate I'm going, I think it's, I'm not quite George Martin yet. It's not like, you know, it's like, (laughs) George George R. R. Martin is like twelve years between books. I'm not quite George R. R. Martin yet, but I think I think it's pretty likely that the next novel might not be out until 2022. Well, we've got lots of fun material to play with in the meantime. Oh, for sure. <laughs> the wraith itself really, yes, it, it really enhanced the entire Nosferatu experience. Oh, hey, thanks. It really filled in the backstory. 
Well, speaking of Charlie Manx, last year, I know I, I asked about your inspiration for Vic McQueen. Right. Basically, one of my favorite heroines of any story. You mentioned her DNA sort of being part Ripley from Aliens and part Sarah Connor from Terminator. Is there <laughs> somewhere that his character came from? Are there any existing inspirations that sort of make him up? Well, I can tell you that Christmas Land was inspired by the island in Pinocchio, where all the bad boys go. Huh. So there's this this thing in Pinocchio where the, there's an island, Pleasure Island, and the boys go to it to smoke cigars and drink and gamble. But the longer they stay there, the more they're in danger of turning into horses' asses. You know, as a little kid, I found that thrilling and terrifying and, and sort of loved it. The inspiration for Charlie Manx's car, from the Rolls-Royce Wraith with the Nosferatu license plate, I live in Seacoast, New Hampshire, and the town that I'm in has, in the summer, has a weekend old antique car show. And years and years ago, I was, I was walking through downtown, and a sinister-looking silver car from the 1940s rolled by, and the license plate said something like Gray Ghost. I can't quite remember exactly how it was spelled on the plate, but it gave me a shiver looking at it. And I thought I'd never get in the backseat of that car. And so that was kind of the, where, where the Rolls Royce started. Not even if you had presents and candy canes waiting for you? <laughs> Not even then? That would be pretty tempting for me, I gotta tell you. <laughs> it, it does sound exciting, but I think I'd have to take the pass. I mean, in terms of Charlie, I don't know that there's any one source for Charlie. I love the novels of Charles Portis, who wrote True Grit. And in some ways, the Charlie in the novels is a little bit of one of Charles Portis's rubes, you know, one of these guys who's like not as smart as he thinks he is, who is sort of more sly and cunning than intelligent. I think the version we get in the TV series, Zachary Quinto's version, is a strategist, is very intelligent is evil married to a high level of wit, which is a slight change from the character in the story. The other thing about Charlie Manx is I sort of relate to him. I had a divorce in 2010, and I have kids. And I thought, this is a really hard thing to put the kids through. And for about a year, I was kind of frantic to give them one good time after another. You know, it was like, you know, we had to watch this amazing TV show. We had to go to this amazing amusement park. We were all going to read this amazing book together. I put on these drive-in movie shows in the backyard. I called it Daddy Drive-In. And I had a big screen out there and they'd have all their friends over. And it was like, I was kind of maniacal. I was just like, yeah. you know, everything had to be, I just had to, you know, shock and awe them with fun. And at a certain point, I thought to myself, you got to get a grip here. They've been through a divorce too. This has also been hard and sad for them. It's not natural to not want them to feel those things. Every day can't be Christmas or Christmas isn't special anymore. So I guess, I guess that kind of thinking led me a little bit to Charlie, who thinks the way to celebrate children is to give them Christmas every day and that nothing ruins a child like growing up. As a divorced father who went through a very similar thing that is extremely accessible, that yeah. actually makes a lot of sense in that kind of a view. I, you know, it was one of those things where Charlie always seemed, if you took him at his face value, he was still kind of a bad guy, but you could <laughs> see like the arrested development at work there. Yes. Growing up itself was a dirty word. Yeah. A mean trick played on you by the world. Yes, I think that's right. I think maybe when I was trying to describe the kind of person he is, arrested development were the words I should have, you know, that's that's the right term for it. That Charlie is smart, but also sort of weirdly not fully adult. Doesn't view the world with the kind of perspective you think an adult should have. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm showing my own pathology here, but I, I think he's actually pretty complicated because there are times where he's charming and he is very funny and amusing just his his take on the modern world can be really interesting <laughs> but at the same time he is this you know psychotic blood-sucking monster somewhere at some point i absorbed the idea that the villain should have a version of the the novel the version of the story in their head in which they're the hero you know however you create your villain your bad guy shouldn't be dr evil you know there should be some version in that character's mind they have to believe they're doing the right thing for the right reasons and that can be really fun 
finding that motivation for an evil character in which they're the hero of the story. Just to go back to the fireman for a second, you know, the fireman is about a runaway plague spreading across the world and killing people by spontaneous combustion. And one of the reasons I did it was I was kind of fascinated with the Rick Grimes character from Walking Dead, who is a hero because he shoots zombies. But what are zombies? Zombies are us horribly infected with a virus. And so he's killing the sick. And so I thought, you know, you could take a Rick Grimes-like character and make him the bad guy in a story very easily. And the motivation is built in. You know, that person believes they have to kill the sick to save civilization. And so that was one of my leaping off points for the fireman was to try to invert the classic zombie apocalypse story and make the guy in the cowboy hat the bad guy instead of the good guy. I love that. The villain has the hero complex. Yeah. Yeah. I think they usually do. Yeah. The fine line of hero and villain always makes for an interesting character, though, because of the complication. You know, no one wants a, a Woody or a Buzz all the time. Even, well, even Woody in Toy Story He's kind of like an asshole, too, you know? He's so, kind of an asshole for the first act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah, for, for sure. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, we have one more question left, and we want to ask, if you had an Inkscape, if you were a strong creative, and maybe you are a strong creative, what would your Inkscape look like? What would your knife look like? Well, the Inkscape would probably look a lot like the room I'm in right now. I'm in my office at home. Behind my computer, I've got the frame covers of three books. And they're not my books because that would be like a weird ego trip thing. I've got the cover of Watership Down, True Grit, and The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoot by David Mitchell. And I keep them there because for me, each of those are sort of like landmarks that help me find my own way. Each of them is a story that for me suggests the best that a story can be. So I guess my office is sort of my inscape. As far as what would be my knife, my in-laws got me a Lammy fountain pen for uh, Christmas. And it's like the perfect fountain pen because it's not one of these ones that's so expensive you feel scared to write with it. But it's not so cheap that it's like, you know, going to fall apart if you if you put it to rough use. I guess I think probably my knife would have to be a pen. I feel sort of like most in touch with my own imagination when I'm holding it. I don't know that we can get a more perfect answer than that. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on today uh, and, and talking about this here. It was such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. You are awesome. Joe, good luck with the show and the season and uh, all the new projects. Take care, and I hope we get a chance to talk again. For sure. Thank you. Be Take well, care. guys. Right. Bye. Bye. A big thank you to Joe Hill. Uh, it was really gracious with his time. We went way over the allotted time for that interview. So I really appreciate him and everyone at AMC for making that happen and, and letting us uh, speak to him and uh, really just talk about a wide ranging uh, number of things and, and a bunch of it, not even Nosferatu related. So I really appreciate his uh, his time and uh, his enthusiasm. Yeah, I, it was a great interview. My favorite part was talking about the three books that sort of made him who he was and the fact that he mentioned Watership Down is, is the first one out of his mouth. I mean, that, that blew me away. It got me in the gut. That That's basically my favorite book ever. To this day, it, it made me really smile to, to hear that that book had such an impact on him as well growing up. I love that. And you have such a, a passionate fandom for him and, and for Stephen King. It, uh, it almost seems like fated that you guys would both like that book uh, so much. It's <laughs> part of his in, part of his inscape and in such an important book for you. Definitely, definitely. Basically in line with the pop culture tastes. I think that takes us to the end of this episode of Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Please join us next week where we talk about episode three, which is called The Night Road. Anna, it looks like we're returning to Parnassus next week. Are you excited to go back to the bar? I'm very excited. I've been waiting to go back there all year. Yeah, it's going to be great. I hope we get nearly as many Easter eggs as we got last season uh, when we were there, all the uh, Stephen King Easter eggs. That and that we might get to meet a new strong creative. Who knows? We'll see. Who knows? I mean, being thwarted by Vic once before, he's going to need some allies, I, I would think, in, in this next new fight against her for the soul of uh, Bruce Wayne McQueen. We hope you guys join us again. We'll have more interviews. We'll have more coverage. We hope you guys enjoyed listening. Thank you so much for listening to Strong Creatives Welcome. Please find us on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. Five stars, five stars, five stars. Or anywhere else that you listen to uh, podcasts. Or subscribe to podclubhouse.com. Thank you very much. See you next week. 
Shrunk Rate is Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse, recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.